Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Welcome to another edition of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast. I am hugely honored to have another New York Times best-selling author on the show, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Rob Wolf. Rob launched the Paleo Diet into the stratosphere in 2010 with his book, The Paleo Solution, and he is an absolute leader in the nutrition, fitness, and ancestral health spaces. His new book, Wired to Eat, launches next week. And today in the episode, he'll talk about a lot of key concepts, including the conventional eat less, move more guidelines and how they are fundamentally flawed, how constant novelty in our food and environment equals increased consumption, how setting up the right environment for you is the key to long-term success, and he also dives into some terrific performance hacks around his seven-day carb test, super tools like fasting and ketosis, recovery hacks, and of course his longevity tips for training and nutrition as you get older. So lots of great stuff in this show today. You can check out uh, the links at drbubs.com forward slash podcast for some of the free gifts that Rob's giving away if you if you order that book um, before the launch date. And of course, we're joining in the fun here as well. My good friends over at Broya Bone Broth Company. I'm a huge fan of Bone Broth and they're my absolute go-to. They're giving away 10% off um, to everyone here using the code drbubs.com. So check out the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast for all those goodies. Hope you enjoy the show. My guest today is Rob Wolf, the New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Solution, The Original Human Diet. Rob is a former research biochemist and one of the world's leading experts in paleolithic nutrition. Rob has transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world via his top-ranked iTunes podcast and wildly popular seminar series. Rob has functioned as a review editor for the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism and the Journal of Evolutionary Health. He is a former California State powerlifting champion and undefeated amateur kickboxer. He's provided seminars in nutrition and strength and conditioning to various governmental and military entities, including NASA, the United States Navy SEALs, Navy Special Warfare, the United States Marine Corps, and the Canadian Light Infantry. Rob also co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliates gyms in the world. Rob, really appreciate you uh, taking the time out today to be on the show. Hey, Doc. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Awesome. Well, no problem. I mean, listen, for people out there who may not be as familiar, you know, you re- released your first book, The Paleo Solution, in 2010, Absolute Game Changer on the Nutrition Front. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing uh, since that first book? Did you take some time off? Did you regroup? Uh, what's been going on? I, I did kind of take some time off. Like, it was uh, actually some cool synergy with that. Right about the time that, you know, we had the book release, and it was pretty full tilt boogie there for, you know, about a year, year and a half after, uh, the release of the payload solution. But then right around that time, um, my wife who, who, you know, it says in my bio that I'm a co-founder of the first and fourth, uh, CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world, which is true. But part of the co-founding was with my wife and it had it not been for Nikki being involved on the business side, I would be living under a bridge basically. Like she's the, you know, like I was kind of the, the front man and did the strength and conditioning and the shaking hands and kissing babies. And she's a phenomenal coach also, but she got in and, and really just from the, the ground floor up systematized all of our, our business, uh, created business systems and really made that thing go. And it was right around this time that some folks that we knew who were kind of big wigs in the technology scene, Uh, They started looking around at an opportunity to create a business management platform, mainly for micro gyms like CrossFit, but it could be appropriate for yoga and Pilates and all this stuff. And that ended up being Front Desk. And my wife ended up being a co-founder of Front Desk. And so this was right around the time that we had our first daughter. And so I was like, hey, I'm going to like part time. I'm going to spin the wheels on the blog, spin the wheels on the, the podcast. And I was also doing a little bit of work here in Reno, Nevada, which is where we we ended up setting up shop. But yeah, I was able to kind of come out of warp drive there for a little bit and uh, was basically Mr. Mom. Like uh, we had a nanny in the morning that would would help with Zoe. And then around 11 o'clock, she went home. And then it was me from 11 till, you know, dinner time. And uh, Nikki mainly worked from home. And so she was able to, to see us. And she was like, you know, doing the uh, 
the mobile milk machine, <laughs> you know, That's awesome. a role of the, the, the mammalian mother and, and all that. But, um, I really got to do some amazing bonding with my oldest daughter and, and kind of came out of warp drive. But it was interesting. We were only in Reno maybe about three weeks and, uh, a guy reached out to me. I got a phone call, you know, answered it. And there was this guy who identified himself as Greeny on the other line. I'm like, okay. And he said, Hey, we have a medical clinic here in town. You should come down and check out what we're doing. I was like, okay. And so I went into this medical clinic and I walked in and I was kind of like, what is going on here? Because up on the bookshelves for sale, were my books and Gary Tobbs books and Lord and Cordain's books. And I was like, what bizarro nice. world have I gone to? <laughs> you know, usually standard medical scene, like they take these books and, sure. turn out and burn them, you know, I mean, it, it's an infidel, you know. So uh, Greeny ended up being Dr. Jim Greenwald, who is a now retired, but formerly pretty famous orthopedic surgeon. And these folks had put together a, a uh, pilot study with the Reno police, Reno fire department, where they found 35 folks that were at high risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. They got these folks on a paleo-type diet, modified their sleep and exercise as best they could. And based off the changes in their blood work and their health risk assessment parameters, it's estimated that they've saved the city of Reno. And, and this is the pilot study alone. It's since been kind of rolled out in mass to the, to the whole system. But the pilot study alone is estimated to have saved the city of Reno $22 million with a 33 to one return on investment. Wow. And, that's incredible. Wow. And I, I don't so know this stuff really works then, right? Yeah. I was like, Oh, I guess I'm just not, you know, uh, an anecdote no more, you know, apparently. And I, um, I'm kind of a student of economics and I've been throwing out this idea that we could see some really remarkable cost savings. If, if we just systemically adopted this kind of ancestral health, evolutionary diet type, type uh, framework, evolutionary medicine type framework. And then we had a really good example of this. And uh, these folks were either foolish enough or brave enough to include me in what they were doing. And I've been on the board of directors for about five years now and helping to take this whole process and kind of scale it up and, and take it out to the masses. And, you know, it was, it was interesting because on the one hand, it really shone a light on this ancestral health modality um, it, it, because it's funny, even though I've been doing this stuff for like 20 years, I'm like, Oh, it really works. It really works. You still, sometimes I kind of question it, you know, like the mainstream media, you, you know, like consistently U S news sure. reports ranks like paleo and whole 30, the worst last. thing you could possibly <laughs> do. Yeah. Like depleted uranium and snorting, um, lead are better than paleo and whole 30. Incredible. You know, it? it's, it's totally incredible. So you kind of, you know, at some point, you just kind of get worn down a little bit by that. But then I, I saw this thing and I'm like, okay, this stuff really matters. And, and again, like I'm kind of a student of economics and I'm a little bit of a paranoid conspiracy theory type of person. You know, when you, when you look at exponential growth costs associated with these, uh, Western degenerative diseases, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, type two diabetes, obesity, like, there's a there's a brick wall we're all heading towards. And, and uh, you know, people talk about socialized medicine and not socialized medicine and everything. All that stuff is just shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. Like if we don't get a hand. Absolutely. hundred percent. Man, it's it, it, there's going to be a reset that is is really powerful. I was actually at a military gathering and I had this is where I discovered what Chatham House rules means. Basically, it was a meeting to talk about existential threats to the to the, uh, you know, U.S. infrastructure. And one of the primary ones that they looked at was healthcare, And it's completely on the radar of the U.S. military that our current healthcare system is poised to cripple us in a way that like domestic terrorism or a nuclear war could do. You know, like that's the way they're looking at this stuff. So it's no joke. And, you know, and I don't throw that stuff out there to scare people, but we should at least be a little bit concerned. But it, it, it again, it really lit a fire under me that we needed. I needed to do something about pushing this idea out there. But at the same time, like I had done the paleo shtick, you know, I wrote the paleo solution. Um, I, I'll, I'll kind of toot my horn a little bit like that effectively launched this whole genre of paleo books. Like there were not, there was Boyd Eaton's book in 
1990, Lauren Cordain's book in 2001. And then there really wasn't much. Mark Sisson did his book maybe two years before mine. But I, when you go into a Barnes and Noble or a Borders or you go on Amazon now, there is a paleo genre, just like vegan or Mediterranean or what have you. And my book kind of kind of helped to launch that. And so it's really cool. But, you know, there have been some challenges with the, the paleo concept. On one hand, um, people just kind of dismiss it. They're like, oh, what are we going to learn from cavemen? You know, so there's this whole kind of branding and image. It takes on that cartoonish it, image. Yeah, yeah very sure. cartoonish image that, that allows people to just kind of dismiss it out of hand. And then there's some really legitimate concerns. You know, people spend a lot of time asking questions like, is this paleo instead of asking, is this actually a good option for me? And, you know, there's that's a really important consideration. And then as time has gone on, we've just discovered that there's a lot of nuance from person to person. And in the second book, Wired to Eat, I talk a lot about that. There, there have been some really fascinating studies where they looked at the blood glucose response of, you know, groups of people, 800, you know, in number. And what was fascinating, they, they looked at the gut microbiome in these folks. They looked at the genetics in these folks. They took blood work. And then they started feeding them meals and they, they put a continuous blood glucose monitor on these folks. So once a minute for the duration of the study, which was three weeks, they checked the blood glucose and they were able to correlate it with these different foods. But what was fascinating is there was virtually no rhyme or reason. Like one person would get near diabetic levels of blood sugar after eating rice. Another person it was like they drank a cup of water instead of eating rice. Like it just didn't move their blood glucose hardly at all. And uh, massive variations, isn't it? Massive variations. And so, you know, when you start seeing stuff like that and, and you're promulgating kind of a one size fits all diet, whether it's specifically paleo or specifically low carb or vegan or what have you, it's kind of like, OK, can we credibly say this, you know, and and uh uh, what these folks were able to do is figure out, OK, if somebody has negative blood glucose responses to this battery of foods, let's delete those. If they have a favorable response to these foods, let's accentuate those. And they, they actually did a really nice control where they got another group of people put them, you know, uh, uh, put on a continuous blood glucose monitor, check their gut biome, check their genetics. And then they ran it through an algorithm pairing and contrasting with the group of 800 that had already gone through this. And then based off that, they were able to predict, OK, if based off your genetics and epigenetics, basically their gut biome, if you eat foods ABC, you should get blood glucose response XYZ. And it was spot on. And what they found was that if they fed folks the amounts and types of carbohydrates that they predicted they would do best with – and they got that favorable blood glucose response. Their inflammatory markers were low. Their um, blood sugar looked great. Their blood lipids looked great. And their gut microbiome tended to continue to head towards what we generally would say looks like a healthier and healthier profile. More diversity, more of the bifido and, and uh, uh, lactobacilli and fewer of the kind of gram-negative bacteria. So it was really pretty darn cool, but it also really made someone like me say, okay, this paleo diet deal is really powerful. We've seen a lot of success, but how many people are we losing because we're not granular enough? You know, this, this, uh, helpful picture story that can get folks started getting, get them moving in a, a good direction. That's great. Like we need a starting place. The starting place needs to be simple, but what do we do then? <laughs> you know, where do we? Yeah, exactly. Back? What are the next uh, steps? And yeah, stuff like something I see in clinical practice, you see people coming in, they get benefit, and then further down the road, for some might be three months or six months or a year, inevitably there's going to be a roadblock there. Right. Um, and so that's you know that idea of personalized nutrition, which I know you talk about a lot in this new in your new book, uh, Wired to Eat. Can you can you touch on that and yeah, you know, how yourself it, you've tweaked up your diet a little bit in the last yeah, few years? It, it, I'm really glad you mentioned that because one of the crazy roadblocks, like I've been talking kind of like protein, carbs, fat mechanism you know, so far. But one of the really fascinating things, uh, to your point, folks will get in and they'll start doing stuff like this. They'll do a diet and lifestyle intervention and they're motoring along pretty well. And then three to six months in, they just kind of peel out. They just, there's like this freak out and they're gone. And in talking to these folks, oftentimes, you know, I, I'm like, what happened to you? Where did you go? Well, you know, and there's some back and forth and there's kind of like some guilt and, and difficulty in extracting what's going on. And what, what I came to, and it, it, it's 
frustrating on the one hand because I'm I'm kind of a slow learner. Like people tell you what they need, and then it's a matter of For having sure. the ears to listen. And it took a long time, and a lot of people saying something to the following, which was, I yeah, I was having success, I was feeling better, but I hit this point where I just felt like it was really hard, and I looked around at other people, particularly looking at social media, and. I just felt like there was something wrong with me. I felt like there was something broken in me because I saw these other people and they just made it look effortless. And so I thought, well, maybe this isn't for me. It's just too hard. I'm broken. I'm flawed. And so I'm done. And in the back of my head, I had a very unsophisticated kind of self-explanation for that where I was like running it through this whole ancestral health story. And I was like, Oh no, no, it, it, you know, it's supposed to be hard. Like we live in a totally different environment and you know, it, uh, uh, you, you know, would be silly to expect that this stuff should be easy. But then a paper uh, came across my, my attention and it was talking about brain evolution and the omnivores real dilemma. And it's just a beautifully written paper. It's technical, but it's also, it would be accessible to any lay person. And I, I can ping you that and you could throw it in the show awesome. notes. Yeah, we'll throw that want. in the show notes for sure. Yeah. But it really made this argument that, you know, where the rubber hits the road for us, you know, okay, we've got these high carb stories and we got these low carb stories and there's examples of all the stuff that works. But at the end of the day, um, what, why do people eat what they eat? Why do people overeat? And it all goes back to this neuroregulation of appetite. Like our appetite is really governed by our brain. It's not necessarily our belly. Our belly communicates to the brain, but you can have scenarios in which the belly is full. The brain senses new food. And I can talk about a really crazy example of that here in a bit if you if you want, For but sure. then you can go from being full to being quote hungry again, or at least have the ability to eat more food. And this is all kind of an outgrowth of our genetics. We are genetically wired as every other organism is on the planet that, that moves to get its, its food. You're wired to get as much nutrition as possible and then do as little as possible. Like bears and wolves don't get a meal or, or cows, what have you. They don't, they don't eat a meal and then consult their Fitbit and say, okay, I just ate 600 calories. So I need to do jumping jacks for 45 minutes to burn that <laughs> off. You know, they don't do that. And we do, um, because, or some of us do, because there is this awareness that there's a mismatch between our caloric intake and our caloric e expenditure, but that's only part of the, you know, the calories in calories out deal is, is not a complete treatment of this story. There's a lot more nuance to it, but you know, free living organisms don't do that. Humans, um, we, we have this benefit, if you want to call that now of culture and technology and infrastructure such that now we could work from our home, sit in our underwear, order food to our front door, pop it in the microwave. It can be a, an incredible variety of flavors and textures and experiences. And we don't have to do a damn thing to obtain any of that, you know, it's supposed and to be called progress, right? But maybe not so much. It is in a lot of ways, <laughs> but it is, so, you know, it, there's a point where anything good, you know, too much of Absolutely. it can become bad and where it's become bad. This is the root of our Western degenerative diseases, you know, and, and, uh, it would be silly if you understand a little bit the way that our genetics were forged in this natural environment and that we are genetically wired to eat more and move less. And, and that's the real story, the exact opposite of what our gatekeepers, the folks in the in medicine and the media are telling us, oh, all, all you need to do is is eat less and move more. But what they're telling you is exactly opposite of your basic biological instinct. Like if you were trapped underwater and you're getting close to passing out because of lack of oxygen, you're going to do everything in your power to pop your head up out of that water and take a gulp of air to save your life. That's a normal biological process. And you would not begrudge anybody for that, you know, but yet we vilify people and we vilify ourselves because we just follow the basic instinct of eating everything that's available. And, and so, you know, at this point, if people buy into this and they don't think it's a total crackpot proposition, you know, they're like, well, what do I do? And you have to kind of, you have to have an understanding about how we're wired to eat everything that goes into it, not just the food, but also the sleep and the stress and the community and appropriate exercise. 
all these things feed back into our neuroregulation of appetite. But there is a way to get anybody eating, moving, loving, and living in a way that they eat enough to be healthy, active, support, you know, support uh, uh, lean muscle mass and all that stuff, but also eat and live in a way that they don't consume too much such that we start developing pathology and diseases in a shortened lifespan. For sure. I mean, I know um, Dr. Stefan Guillenes you know, talked about that, how, how old those mechanisms are in terms of right. getting back to the, the brain of a lamprey, I suppose, which is the example of, of areas of the brain that are, that are triggering this, that are some, you know, six and a half million years old. Um, so c- can you speak, you, you touched on it already, but to speak to that mismatch of, of how we were when we were walking around looking for food and just the environment today of, of, of so much caloric density yet lack of nutrients in some of the foods that were so easily available to us. Yeah. And you know, if, if folks have not read Stefan's book, the hungry brain, it is amazing. Like that guy is just the smartest dude in the room and it doesn't matter which room he's in. He's the, he's the (laughs) smartest guy there and he does an amazing treatment of this topic, but it's, um, so there's this concept of optimum foraging strategy, which basically throws out this proposition that, um, you know, it's kind of a, a really simple equation, which is that organisms figure out how to get the most calories and really nutrition that they can get expending the least amount of energy. And this is accounting 101 that you would use for uh, home economics or for your business or what have you. Like if you expend more energy or money than what you take in, you'll end up bankrupt in a natural environment. If an organism consistently burns more energy than it takes in, burns more nutrition than what it can obtain out of its environment, it's going to die. And so there are really ancient uh, mechanisms that encourage us to eat as much food as we possibly can. But then there's a really fascinating kind of a counterpoint, almost like a dueling banjo kind of story. And it's this concept of palate fatigue. So even though we want to eat a whole lot of food and and then rest, if we get a lot of food, say like we have a giant bucket of blueberries or elk or what have you, like it could be really amazing food. You will experience this process called palate fatigue. As you eat this one item, you will start getting bored of it, even though there's a lot of it around. But if you had one thing that was different you could then eat that. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you the example of this. I, I mentioned it in my book and I've got a, a link on my website. I think it's robwolf.com forward slash ice cream. But there's this awesome. guy, Adam Rickman. And I saw this thing years ago, like five, six years ago, filed it away. And I told my wife, I'm going to use that someday. And so it, it's really a beautiful illustration of this point. So Adam Rickman is pretty famous. He had a show on like HGTV uh, called Man Versus Food. And he would go do these massive eating challenges where he would need to eat like a 72 ounce steak in a certain period of time. And one of these challenges was called the kitchen sink ice cream Sunday challenge. And it was an eight eight pound (laughs) ice cream Sunday. And they literally served this thing in a kitchen sink. And uh, to date there had only been like three people who were able to eat this thing in a certain allotted time and, and they would win. And I don't know what they won, diabetes or I don't know what the exactly, winning yeah. was. But so he gets in and he starts eating this thing. And I, I don't think anybody would argue that a good ice cream sundae isn't pretty delicious. It's a, you know, I mean, it's got the sprinkles and hot fudge and all that sort of stuff. Um, but even though he has what is arguably a hyper palatable food, like a really, really tasty you know, pile of food, mountain of food. At some point he started bogging down and he bogged down so badly. You can see in the video where he actually starts retching and kind of gagging as he tries to hit, to take another bite of this ice cream sundae. And he's only about a third of the way through when this starts happening. So you're like, Oh, there's no way this guy's going to succeed. Then he does something that just befuddles most people in, in standard dietetics. He orders a plate of extra salty, extra crunchy French fries. And then he starts nibbling on the fries and then taking another bite of ice cream and nibbling on the fries and taking a bite of ice cream. And he is able to complete eating the ice cream sundae, which he would have failed at. But the only way he's able to do it is by eating more total food. And so what yeah, I think he, I saw, I think I saw that uh, yeah. maybe a couple of years ago at Paleo FX, you played that video. And yes, for anybody yes. who hasn't seen the video, I mean, it is an absolute eye opener of just, just like how this person is absolutely stuffed. And then all of a sudden just hijacks that, 
uh, brain mechanism all of a sudden just dives right back in. Yeah. And, and, you know, really, instead of reading the book or listening to this podcast, if people just watch that, that video, sums it all up. we're able to take it away. They're like, oh, OK, even if food tastes good, if you have too much of it, you'll get bored of it. But if I have something else that's tasty and particularly tasty in a different way, I can continue eating. And so the takeaway from that is we need to not eat like professional eaters. We need simple meals and, you know, all that type of stuff. And we're, and we're going to be much more likely to succeed. But this is just a, a, you know, it's a beautiful illustration of um, both that optimum foraging strategy and the palate fatigue stories played out essentially in one meal, you know. And if you can take away from that again, the, the overall lessons of we will generally not overeat if we choose simple, largely whole, unprocessed foods. Like we will generally do pretty well if we we steer clear of that. And it's not to say that you never have an ice cream sundae. It's not to say that you never have, uh, uh, you know, like a plate of French fries or what have you. But, you know, with the recommendations I make in my book, which are very similar to what I did in the, the first book, like you need to go home and clean out your pantry and clean out everything that's a dodgy food option because we don't lay in bed at night dreaming about the pork loin and Brussels sprouts. We think about the ice cream and the little Debbie snack cakes, you know, and, and uh, yeah. we just need to recognize that that's not a failing. That's not a weakness. That is good biological engineering, if you want to put it in those terms. And, uh, you know, if people may push back about against that a little bit, but I look at it as a self-defense strategy. You need to take care of the home because it, 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 and to some degree, the work environment, you know, depending on how much time you, you were there. And that can be a challenge because coworkers love to undermine our progress at times. Oh, but, for sure. I mean, the donuts and the muffins, yeah. and of course, a lot of co you know, people at work have their drawer full of snacks. Right. And just like you mentioned, you know, right. a lot of great studies showing if that snack is in your drawer, you're basically going to go for it hundred percent of the time versus if you have to walk down the hall, Versus if you have to go across the street to, to go pick it up. Exactly. So that, that proximity is a huge, huge part. And it's amazing how subconsciously your brain knows that and it's already calculated that that reward and um, this cost is benefit. That, that, uh, that evolutionary wiring, like your brain literally, and, and we still don't fully understand how it does this, but if it's within a grab, you know, it, it, you open a drawer, you pop it in your mouth, like there's no cost there. So your brain's like, heck yeah, I'm all about it. But then if you just have to wander down the hallway and maybe there's a little walk of shame associated with it, you know, then it's kind of like, ah, OK, I don't know if I'm going to do it. And if you have to go down the elevator, out the door, across the street to the deli across the way to get to this stuff, you're really less likely to do it. So I look at it as a, a basic self-defense strategy. Like we need to keep our our home and the, the most frequently uh, visited or or experienced locations in our lives. We need to keep a little bit of reins on that. And then when we do kick our heels up, if we have something kind of off, off the usual path, um, if we are generally on point, you know, if, if we eat three meals a day, seven days a week, that's 21 meals. If 18 or 19 of your meals are on point, they're largely whole unprocessed foods and, and, uh, not hype, you know, built around hyper palatable options like ice cream sundaes and, and, uh, uh, French fries, then you're going to be fine. Like it just doesn't matter in the, the big, picture, um, with some caveats, like I'm super reactive to gluten. So folks that react to gluten, you're going to have to be mindful of that. You know, um, you have to also be mindful. Are there certain things that could be trigger foods that, you know, um, that are going to make it really difficult for you to get back on track? You know, for me, sweets really aren't that compelling, but you throw a bag of extra salt, you know, salty, crunchy, uh, vinegar and sea salt potato chips in front of me. And it doesn't matter if it's a five ounce bag or a 50 pound bag, I'm going to eat the whole bag, you know, and I'll push down an old lady sure, in the street sure. to get to it. So, um, and is that why this idea of moderation though? I mean, we hear that so much, this idea of just having everything in moderation, um, has been the strategy for the last, uh, you know, 30, 40 years or so. And obviously to perhaps not the greatest results. So, you, you know, you speak to that a little bit in your book as well. Can you, yeah, can you, you know, it, it's, um, so we want to give people simple, actionable solutions, right? And we want to, you know, and this everything in moderation just seems like great folk wisdom type stuff. You know, my my mom's side of the family is from the deep south in the United States. And, you know, it, it, this just sounds like a piece of like Mark Twain-esque, you know, advice. The only problem is that it completely ignores 
our basic evolutionary wiring. You know, this concept of if just, you know, like close one's eyes and imagine walking down the snack aisle of a supermarket. Where does moderation live there? And again, like I'll guarantee you if you're in this uh, the sweet part of the snack aisle, maybe that's your your Achilles heel or it's going to be the salty, crunchy part of the snack aisle. Or maybe you get right in the middle where you have something like caramel covered almonds with some salt on it. And so it's sweet and salty and crunchy and has a little bit of savory umami to it, there will be your kryptonite there somewhere. I guarantee it. And, and so what does moderation even mean in those contexts? And, and that's an opinion piece, but if we want to get actually scientific and granular on this topic, comparing different dietary approaches head to head, this American Dietetics Association, you know, have a little bit of everything, everything in moderation. And you compare that against any, any other intervention, whether it's paleo or vegan or macrobiotic or cabbage soup diet, which all of these other things to some degree limit palate options. They provide some lane lines that are like, no, some of those foods are, you know, generally off limits, not forever, but in general, they're, they're more off limits than not. All of these other approaches work better than the everything in moderation approach. The everything in moderation approach, with very few exceptions, fails everyone. And again, you just kind of have to look back. We've been told everything in moderation. We've been told eat less, move more. And we've been told that for going on 70 years now. And it, at the point where we started telling people this was also the point where we started industrializing the food system and creating basically a government-subsidized junk food empire. And it was right at this point that we started seeing exponential growth in, in uh, obesity and all these other knock-on problems. So I would just throw out, the, you know, it, this again, maybe it gets a little bit far afield, but um, how good are our cell phones today and how cheap are they compared to what they were 10 years ago? Like there's, For sure. there's no comparison. Like they've gotten better. They've gotten cheaper. We know more about microprocessors. We know all more about that stuff. And so it gets cheaper and better. The, the needle moves forward Our you know, these products are better. We know more about genetics and biochemistry and endocrinology and all the pathology that underlies these diseases. We know more about it today than we've ever known in history. But yet the rates of these conditions are increasing exponentially. Yeah, it's amazing. I had uh, Dr. Jason Fung on uh, the other day, and he was comparing the rates of uh, diabetic, diabetic nephropathies from the 1920s to today. And, you know, we're worse now than we were 100 years ago, which is like you mentioned. I mean, your cell phone or your car or anything else is not worse after all this time. So how is it possible how in the health that we just end up getting worse with everything? Yeah, then we're doing everything wrong. Everything that we're recommending is wrong in that case. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I'm supposed to in theory, go do a talk for one of the local um, hospital systems here in Reno. And there's some serious drama that's emerging because like the dietitians are like, we don't want a paleo guy in there. And they're like, he's not talking paleo, he's talking neuroregulation of appetite. But there's some really <laughs> incredible fear there. And on the one hand, I kind of get it. Like they don't want a charlatan coming in, you know, peddling snake oil and stuff like that. But at the same time, like, you know, I think all of us should be at a level of frustration where it's like, OK, maybe we just need to do a class action lawsuit and, uh, you know, kind of like big tobacco style. And if you're a healthcare 100%. provider and you have someone that is in that metabolic syndrome, you know, group and they're pre-diabetic or diabetic and you're not recommending that something that looks kind of low carb, paleo-esque. Um, you, you probably need to be sued, <laughs> held accountable for what you're, you're doing there. And it may come down to something like that. Like the science is crystal clear on this, but it may take like the, the blunt tool of like a class action lawsuit to really perk these people up and, and, uh, get them just, just, you know, it's like, Hey, can we try it for 30 days? You know, can we, can we give this a shot oh, for, for sure. 30 days and, and see what comes of this? Because, I mean, you see even in Canada and the U.S., I mean, the, the, the diabetic recommendations are typically about 50% of the meals, carbohydrate. Yes. You just think, geez, I mean, are we even looking at the literature or are we just <laughs> throwing darts on the wall? Um, now, you mentioned the paleo diet. And obviously, how does that dovetail into the framework of your new book, Wired to Eat? Oh, it's a great question. You know, so again, even though there's some, you know, uh, challenges around the, the paleo diet concept from both like image and, and whatnot and really understanding what it is all the way to 
folks kind of uh, being a little bit nutty about asking, is this paleo versus is this a good idea? Um, you know, this work that we did with the Reno police, Reno fire department, it's pretty crystal clear that this is a very powerful operating system. It's a really powerful tool to use. And so within the context of the book, I use essentially an anti-inflammatory paleo type diet as the 30 day reset. This is our whole foods, you know, getting going in a good direction approach. And we run that for about 30 days. And then at the end of that, what I really encourage folks to do is to then follow that up with the seven day carb test where we use a glucometer and we use some subjective measures like how do you feel between meals and we track all this stuff. And then we start testing a battery of carbohydrates. And, you know, most people don't eat, uh, you know, a hugely varied uh, diet anyway. You know, they may eat corn tortillas or they eat sweet potatoes or whatever. But, you know, there's usually about seven to ten things that they pull from for the most part. So for sure, I, it just repeats through the week. Yeah, definitely. it just kind of repeats uh, to to large extent. And so I encourage folks to get in and really look at that stuff. And, you know, that experiment, I, I did that experiment. I, I wore a continuous blood glucose meter and I tracked a huge variety of foods um, for two weeks. And it was fascinating. So there was a lot of confirmation there on the one hand, like things like white rice and white potatoes. I had suspected for ages really uh, produced some pretty high blood glucose responses with me, like I would get some vision problems after eating these foods. I, I would uh, get foggy headed. I had what I've come to associate or, or assume to be some hyper and then hypoglycemic events. And I would get shaky and cranky and all that stuff, which was in pretty good contrast to eating a, a kind of lowish carb uh, diet. Um, so some things like white rice and white potatoes were really problematic for me. And then some things like lentils, like I, I responded great to those. Like I had fantastic blood glucose response. My digestion was good with them. Um, interestingly, black beans and kidney beans were less good for me. Like I had some higher blood sugar and I had a little bit of GI wonkiness with those. So that was kind of a challenge. Um, trying to remember like most squashes, like butternut squash, spaghetti squash, I had fantastic blood glucose response. And then I had some friends who did this same process. And I, I had one friend, a small but really athletic female. When she ate the lentils, she looked like she was diabetic. I mean, it was like a, a 180 uh, nan nanograms per, per milliliter at two hours. Whereas when she had white rice, it barely got above 105. And, and these amounts, people are eating the same amount of carbohydrate. They're getting 50, what I recommend in the book is 50 grams of effective carbohydrate. And this is what's kind of crazy. The lentils have so much protein and so much fiber. You have to eat like a metric ton of them to get 50 grams of effective carbohydrate. Rice is much yeah. more concentrated. So in general, you would just dismiss rice. It'd be very easy to dismiss it and say, oh, it's a much more dense carbohydrate source. That's going to spike blood sugars much more aggressively. I would have always said that. I would have said that that's a blanket statement across the board, like it's basic kind of like – physics, thermodynamics type of gig. And it just wasn't true. And we don't know exactly what the story is there, but clearly there's an interaction between the gut microbiome and the genetics of the individual. And then how that story gets played out based off the food that they take in. But this is where it's really, you know, as powerful as something like paleo or vegan or whatever it is that you want to want to check out. There's a really good argument for getting more granular on that because there may be some things that, one, you you should be including in your diet that may not fall within those normal parameters. And then there may be some things like yams and sweet potatoes. Like I have a fairly high blood sugar response to those, even though they're, quote, paleo foods. So when I have those, I usually top my serving off. It's about 25 grams of effective carbohydrate with those foods. And then my blood sugar response mm -hmm. is fine, you know, so you can attenuate that. Um, by having a smaller amount. So let's say you have a food that you really like. And again, I'll put in the caveat. So like if you're reactive to wheat, if you're reactive to soy or, or corn or something, then we don't necessarily want to bomb our system with immunogenic foods. And I know you talk about that stuff all the time, but I just want to want to throw that caveat out there. For sure. I mean, it's such a great way for people as well who, you know, more and more people want to be very proactive in their health and you get this immediate feedback as well with, with using, you know, glucometers and, and, and assessing different foods. So I find that people can really kind of take ownership as well of their own health. And you, you must see this all the time where once people 
start to identify those foods that they feel best eating, I mean, it's it starts to move the uh, you know the snowballs moving in the right direction, so to yeah. speak, and sort of picking up momentum with their health and movement and the rest of it. Absolutely, and it's a, it's a really powerful, you know, beautiful process to watch, and it, it's. Um, I will say that it, it's uh, it's a little scary for someone like me because you you want to be able to provide a really simple set of guidelines, you know, and this is where things like just eat low carb or just eat paleo. Here's a list of paleo foods like those things are really powerful. And again, they're a great starting place for folks. But we need to be willing to not write that stuff in stone and turn it into religious dogma and, and be willing to do some experimenting to continue to to refine what we're up to. And, it, it, you know, it may seem like a a bit of a process doing that for seven days, but if you'll get a sense, a really remarkably granular and refined sense of what you will do best with. And then you've got the rest of your life to play with those things. You know, just this little bit of experimentation can can show you what the fueling is that will optimize where you are. And let's say a year or so down the road or six months down the road, like maybe you're not feeling quite as good or, you know, what have you, then you can get back in and reassess. And maybe something changed in your gut flora. You know, maybe you went on a round of antibiotics because you were traveling and you caught some crazy gut bug. And previously you did well with rice. Then after that round of antibiotics, you may not do well with rice. This is another thing to keep in mind that all this stuff is really labile. It's not completely static. Who you are today may not remain to be the same, uh, you know, with regards to, to the way that your metabolism deals with these foods. So we also need to be open to that potentiality that some things can change over time. And that can go both ways. Like if we're eating really well and we are getting a handle on our stress and we're sleeping better and our photo period, you know, being out in the sun and going to bed early and all that stuff gets better, that usually increases the amount and variety of foods that we can eat. We are less constrained by that if we get a better handle on the other lifestyle factors. Yeah, so true. I mean, it's such a dynamic system. And I've always been amazed with some of our guys at Canada Basketball who are lean and fit and some of them consuming more high glycemic carbohydrates, just as you mentioned, some of them get away with this a lot better than others do. And so that blanket statement of just figuring out um, from a GI index of what foods would be best, it's really, if you take the time to look under the hood a little bit, you're going to have some really great revelations in terms of the foods that are best uh, for you in terms of personalizing that nutrition. So that's that's terrific. Now, I know in your book, you talk, you know, sleep and exercise and community, which is really cool. Um, Can you you touch on that a little bit in terms of uh, how community plays a role in the and the whole uh, health, wellness. Yeah, and you know, my publisher wanted to wring my neck on that stuff. Like, they basically oh, wanted really? a seven days to paleo abs deal, and I was like, that's a great book, but that's not the book I'm going to write, you know, and and uh, yep. uh, for good or ill, if, I've, if I have any strength, I think I'm pretty good at synthesis and kind of drawing a lot of stuff together, and if we, if I'm couching this whole thing, this whole story from let's understand our neuroregulation of appetite and how that influences our, our eating choices, then things like sleep and stress, which the community piece is a massive potential either benefit or stressor. It's very well understood that folks who have adequate community that have uh, significant, strong social networks they tend to be as, or, or I'll, I'll flip around the opposite. Folks that are not that have inadequate social connectivity, don't have super strong social networks, they are as increased in likelihood of morbidity and mortality of death and and disease as a pack a day smoker. And we don't know exactly what's know. going on with this, but again, this kind of ancestral health evolutionary biology template, we evolved in small groups, and and there's kind of a almost a genetic expectation that we we have lots of connection and lots of connectivity and lots of reciprocity. Like I help someone today and then they help me tomorrow and there's kind of good feels that go along with all that type of stuff. And so um, I make a pretty good case that, you know, checking some things out like CrossFit gyms or yoga or walking groups or martial arts, those are really good options because you can talk about food, um, you're getting some exercise and you have that community piece just baked in the cake. You know, that's that that's why you're getting together. And it's a it's a often forgotten or, or underappreciated piece of this whole story. But it, it's a critical factor. And then the other side of this also, and we've talked about this a, a little bit already, you know, like the workplace environment, you can have some some relationships and some community that's toxic. 
And you need to be aware of that too. You know, like though there can be some hamstringing features with regards to some of our relationships and I'm not a therapist, I'm not a counselor. I don't offer huge, you know, amounts of advice and how to deal with that other than just being aware of it and then, you know, making some decisions about how to improve that situation. hundred percent. I mean, it's uh, this idea of community is phenomenal. I mean, the, the blue zone studies where they track the, the centenarians and the longest livers on the planet, I was amazed to find out that community was one of the big pieces there. So it's a, uh, it's a really, really fundamental piece. How do you find, and you know, with our younger athletes at Canada basketball, you know, just the connectivity, the always being on the phone mm-hmm. versus you mentioned going to classes, like actually physically seeing real people. I mean, this is sort of like a new problem perhaps for the generation that's coming up. Yeah. It's really interesting because it, it, in this, so the, the folks that made Twitter and Facebook, they devoted a lot of time to studying neurophysiology and addiction, interestingly. And they're like, what are the features that make something really sticky, that make it addictive? And constant novelty is something that makes things addictive. And, and it's true of food. And it's particularly true of, of these, uh, you know, social media platforms and so on the one hand, they're addictive. They spin that dopamine, you know, part of the brain in a, a almost cocaine-like fashion. But similar, the, the social media platforms are kind of the junk food of community. You feel like you're connected. You feel like you're interacting with someone. But you, when we look at what folks take away from that experience, it's not the same. It's not reducing stress. It's enhancing stress. It's increasing it. And so not only does it kind of sort of feel like community, but it's not. It's kind of like anti-community. It's like the anti-particle to community. It's also occupying the, the limited amount of time that you could have gone and had real, you know, meaningful connections with folks. And, you know, they, like you said, this new generation of, of uh, young folks, um, there's some interesting stuff where they, you know, they're, uh, and again, this isn't a blanket statement, uh, uh, some of the sharpest, most articulate people I've met are, you know, folks in their teens and twenties these days, but there's also a lot of them that they can't make eye contact with people. They can't, you know, carry on a conversation. They can't, they definitely can't handle conflict resolution in a one-on-one space. Like they just don't know how to deal with that. You know, it's like, Hey, my thoughts on this are, are ABC, your thoughts on this are XYZ. Let's discuss this. And they don't know how to deal with that. And, um, there's going to be some really serious knock on effects to that. And I, I don't profess to have really good answers or solutions other than encouraging people to be aware of all this. Yeah, that's the, very well said. Um, now, Rob, if we can actually circle back, uh, I know you devoted the whole chapter to uh, fasting and it was a hot topic in ketosis. Can you touch on a little bit of the benefits and pitfalls uh, for those who are, are, are new to it? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because you would be hard pressed to find someone more excited, more passionate about the topics of intermittent fasting and ketosis uh, than myself. But that said, I um, oftentimes suffer some slings and arrows from the folks who really, really love these topics. But I don't I look at them like tools. I look at them like a hammer or a saw or a screwdriver. And when you need to put a nail in a two by four, a hammer is great. A bandsaw is terrible, you know, and, and so uh, the, the states of fasting and ketosis are arguably, um, kind of almost the default human metabolic condition, particularly if we look at, you know, again, this kind of optimum foraging strategy picture and, and how often our ancestors ate versus didn't eat. And we needed a really good system for keeping our, our brain in particular, well-fueled, not just during or immediately after meals, but potentially hours or days between meals. And although the brain has a pretty strong predilection to run on glucose, it also runs really, really well on these things called ketone bodies. And ketone bodies are produced when we have either a really profound caloric deficit or if we have a a deficit or deficiency in specifically carbohydrate, but also potentially protein. And so Fats are a great fuel source, but they're not easily water soluble. It's kind of they're slow to get around the body. They're particularly difficult to get through the blood brain barrier, whereas these ketone bodies kind of carry the energy pop that a, a, uh, a fat molecule would carry. But it's water soluble in the brain, the heart, the kidneys, a number of organs just seem to thrive on ketone bodies. 
So the, the ketogenic state is, is arguably this really important um, kind of transitional option that the, the body experiences in between meals, particularly if we go for extended periods of time uh, without eating or eating relatively little. And there appear to be some really huge benefits to entering in and out potentially of this state. We flip on some cellular stress mechanisms like the sirtuins, which seem to be activated in states of caloric restriction and also seem to be preferentially activated in particularly long-lived organisms, like uh, if they have a strain of fruit flies or a strain of mice and even looking at, at certain centenarians and humans, they seem to have a little bit more cert one gene activity going on. And there's a host of other genes that are being activated also. But this ketosis and fasting seem to turn some of these cell stress mechanisms on and they tend to encourage some cleanup within the cells. They tend to encourage a process called apoptosis of abnormal cells where these abnormal cells that may be heading into a state called senescence where they're alive, but they're not really doing anything beneficial. They're just producing inflammatory uh, signaling molecules, which can create more problems for the healthy tissue. Ketosis and fasting has a really powerful effect on cleaning all that stuff up. So there's just a ton of benefits for these states. Um, uh, ketosis has been studied for over 100 years for epilepsy, and it, it, it's proven to be remarkably effective. There are now some uh, uh, some pretty solid studies suggesting and beginning to demonstrate the efficacy of ketogenic diets for things like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, senile dementia. Um, there may be some benefits in areas like cancer, although I, I, I don't think ketosis and fasting will be a cure-all for cancer, but it may be a really powerful adjunctive treatment. Mm -hmm. But the, you know, as powerful as these tools are, most of the medical community still is scared of ketosis. They, when they hear that word, they think that we're talking about ketoacidosis, which is an un, a, a metabolic state that can lead to a very rapid death and, and potentially brain damage and a host of other issues. So they're not what they, they have no nuance on this topic. Um, ketoacidosis is a, a dangerous metabolic state, state similar to uncontrolled diabetes and uncontrolled diabetes. We have exceptionally high blood glucose levels, which can cause all kinds of problems in ketoacidosis. We have exceptionally high ketone body levels, which can cause a host of problems. But then we have nutritional ketosis or fasting in which the ketone bodies are at reasonable, what appears to be therapeutic levels. And then similarly under a, a normal fed condition, we can have normal blood glucose levels. So it's just a, a case where the the medical community needs to have a bit more uh, nuanced understanding of these states. Um, but again, they're a, a really powerful tool. Um, you know, situations like really hard training athletes, particularly glycolytic athletes like soccer, MMA, jiu-jitsu, CrossFit. I've really tried to keto adapt folks for those types of activities. And I, I've found it to be challenging and generally have been unsuccessful with it. There are some folks out there that, that seem to be getting some success and there are some arguments for maybe why you might or might not want to, to use that as an approach. But uh, again, I, I would argue that there are probably some populations for whom fasting and ketosis may be incredibly beneficial and then some situations where we should probably be a little circumspect about recommending it. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, um, you know, it's, it's such a lifestyle change as well. If your athlete's not fully bought into the concept, then you can definitely be uh, butting your head up against the wall a little bit. Now, I know a lot of people do well adding more salt into their mm -hmm. keto approach, especially when they're first going over. Now, you know, how do we sort of square that circle with even, you know, the salt availability of the foods around us and nature obviously being quite low? Is, does that suggest it's better for us to be kind of dipping our toe in and out of ketosis versus being in that state full stop? That's a really, that's a really, really good question. And my answer is not going to be nearly as good <laughs> as your question. Um, you, you know, so salt is, it, salt's one of the, um, the only minerals that we can taste. You know, there's some folks out there that will say, oh, you crave a food when you're deficient in the nutrients that are in that food. And th this has been really well studied and it's just not true. Like it, it's, uh, I can make people angry. They can argue with me. But I mean, the, this this to topic has been discussed. What what's going on there, though, is, uh, you know, kind of woven into our again, our evolutionary history is that in general, whole whole unprocessed foods 
tend to have certain profiles of nutrients. And so if you generally ate those foods in a, in a good mix, then you ended up getting all the stuff that you needed. But sodium in particular is really interesting in that it is a vital nutrient and virtually all animals seek it out. Like there are these amazing uh, videos of these goats in Italy that will go up these, these dams where there's a little bit of water seepage through the rocks in the dams and you get mineral salt deposits and these goats will scale these things and it is so hairball, but they'll go up there just <laughs> wow. to lick the salt off this stuff, you know? So, so salt is kind of a scarce commodity in nature and it's kind of hard to track down. And without a doubt, this is one of the things that for myself in fiddling with ketogenic diets, I thought I was adding a lot more salt to my, my meals or it, and it was relative to where I was at previously, you know, I would salt my meals and whatnot, but I went to a keto gains seminar in Las Vegas last October and I kind of laid out what I was doing and the keto gains guys were like, no man, you're not even on, not even close to where you need to be. <laughs> you know, they're recommending that, that particularly for athletes, like you're doing like a teaspoon of sodium chloride of table salt, which is about four grams of total sodium chloride, maybe about two and a half grams of sodium in that, in that dose, doing that like two or three times a day, sometimes more depending on how hard an individual is training. Now that sounds crazy. At it, it, uh, it first blush, it sounds crazy. And again, the mainstream medical scene is telling us eat less salt, eat less salt. That's been really well studied. And what's fascinating on that is there's what's called a U curve. And we see lots of these U curves in biology when we look, think about health and disease. And uh, so if you think about the shape of a U and on the, the up and down axis, we have disease rates. And then on the bottom axis, we have amount of sodium intake. At very, very low sodium intake, we tend to see an increase in death and disease. And then as we yep. increase sodium intake, it goes down to a low nub and that's about five to six grams of sodium a day seems to be where most people see some pretty remarkable benefit with regards to health and, and morbidity, mortality. And then what's really interesting is on that other, that right hand side of the U-curve, it doesn't go up super steep. It's actually kind of flat and drags out and you don't really see markedly increased rates of morbidity and mortality until you st start getting up around eight or nine grams a day of sodium. So it's really and those are your processed food eating folks too that are yeah, getting that high, right? Yeah, just and, all that processed stuff. Yeah, sodium as a main preservative. Yeah, I mean, generally it's very hard to get that stuff. So it, it's um, and it's mainly these super high refined foods. And so even though you're overlaying the sodium intake with these processed foods, it takes a while for that sodium to really, as an individual feature, to really add up there. And so I'm I'm not necessarily advocating that people get out and guzzle huge amounts of, of, you know, like salt water or something like that. But it's another one of these things that the medical community has told us, reduce your sodium, reduce your sodium, and there's going to be health benefits to it. And if you really look at the, the literature, you look at the science on this, it, it's not true, you know, or, or to the degree it's true. There's some really huge caveats. Now, the one thing that I will throw in there, you know, we've talked a decent amount about the neuroregulation of appetite and we need simple foods and complex flavor experiences can tend to encourage people to overeat foods. So I will make the argument that salting or sugaring one's food could encourage increased consumption of food. So, and this is where Stephen Guinet, I, I believe with most of his recommendations, you know, he'll, he'll tell you, uh, for a weight loss individual, particularly someone who really is having a challenge with with sticking to a program of not overeating, he'll encourage folks to be kind of kind of careful with things like salt and pepper and even garlic. Like they're really, really, really trying to limit the palate options and the palate experience so that that person can kind of repair their neuroregulation of appetite. That's funny. I see that in my three and a half year old. Anything that's got sugar or salt on it, and all of a sudden the uh, the intake definitely goes through the roof. Yeah. Now, now, Rob, I want to respect your time here. So a couple of last uh, quick questions here. Now, you recently wrote a, a newsletter about, uh, you know, life at 45 and training and nutrition and some of the things and insights that you'd, you know, you're quite candid about that you sort of shifted over. Can you, can you share a couple of those with uh, the listeners? Oh yeah. I mean, I've been doing this for, I guess, six years now. The first one I did was my training at 39 and I kind of do the the once a year shirtless photo just to kind of keep myself accountable. And, um, you know, 
I, the, I guess the takeaways with that thing. So my, my big movement thing that I like to do kind of my outside activity is Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And so I've kind of structured my strength and conditioning, most of my fueling around getting better at that. And, you know, the, the big takeaways from that are particularly as you, as one ages, you need to be really good about mobility. We need to be really smart about how much of a dose we get from our training. And we, you know, if you want to make progress with something or even just remain injury free and, and just kind of move them forward, you need to be really savvy about, you know, when, when do you need to take time off when, you know, how much of a, uh, volume and intensity do you get exposed to? And so I, I talk a lot about that in these yearly updates and what's interesting to me, and I'm maybe a little bit different in that, um, you know, I was a state powerlifting champion. I've lifted weights virtually most weeks since I was like 13, you know? So, I mean, I've got a good strength background. I've done a lot of this stuff. So I can do a maintenance program that's two days a week of a very quick strength training circuit and then I do some hiking with my kids and, and then do the Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I have a really remarkable degree for a 45-year-old guy. I have a remor- remarkable degree of physicality. I have good body composition. I'm strong. I have good cardio. And it's a very minimal input. Like, it, it, And what's interesting is for me to get much more out of that, to get much stronger, to get much more cardio – would really require a remark, like a doubling of my efforts in, in the gym or, or otherwise. And it would also start exposing me to the likelihood of overtraining just in a heartbeat. So I've, you know, I've found this spot where I get a huge amount of return on what I'm doing, um, with very little input, but then also I've managed to kind of meter my, my ego at this point because I've beaten myself down so many times. Like you can, <laughs> you can only experience so many sinus infections from beating yourself to death where you're kind of like, okay, I got to dial this stuff back. But it's interesting. Like I'm, I'm fit, I'm strong, I'm lean. Uh, my wife is still, you know, amicable to sleeping with me. Uh, I, I always tell her that I look just like Brad Pitt always with the lights are off. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, <laughs> a good deal. And so, you know, I, I've got a good life in that regard and it's not a crazy frenetic pace with regards to the strength and conditioning. And I like the food I eat. I eat when I'm hungry. Um, I, I keep my meals generally pretty simple. Every once in a while, I'll do some of the Jackson Honest uh, sweet potato potato chips, and I will eat a whole bag of those. But that's not too often. But you know, but I don't go. I don't worry about it too much. I do I do a little bit of planning on that. I, I uh, stick those on the days where I've done a really, really hard Brazilian jiu-jitsu day. And I'm like, okay, I'm pretty insulin sensitive right now. So I'm going yeah, to get this, my right? heels up and, and do this. And that, that's been a really, um, it's been a really fun, effective, easy way of doing things. And, and man, if I could have, if I could have done things more like this in my twenties and thirties, uh, you know, like I, uh, at the age of 31, I could clean and jerk 320 pounds, like take 320 pounds from the floor, pop it to my shoulders, punch it overhead. I could do eight or 10 standing backflips in a row. Um, I could do some pretty cool stuff. And at 45, nice. I can't do so many of those things, <laughs> you know. And if I, if I had been a little smarter in my training and a little more um, measured, I wonder if I could still do more of that stuff now and how much more of that could I have done then, you know, just being smarter and not beating myself down all the time. Well, that's a good message for the young athletes. We always try to get guys, you know, having that old head on the young body is a real uh, key uh, for, for performance and, and athletics. And I, I love your, you know, the, the idea of minimum effective dose as we yeah. get older, of just finding that right approach and kind of nailing it down. Um, now, last one for you here, Rob, before we, uh, before we let you go. I know in listening to your podcast and writing your first book, I think, you know, coffee and caffeine, like most people, was a, was a pretty good lever for you to getting through that. Right. What about the second time around with this book? Have you, have you adopted a new strategy? Was there a bit of caffeine, coffee in there? Or yeah, what was the... you know, but I, I've definitely adopted a more measured approach to that. Um, again, like bombing, bombing out my adrenals with coffee is not so good. I'll tell you the one really big interesting takeaway that I've had with the, the caffeine stimulant story. If I'm really profoundly sleep deprived, so like I just did a bunch of traveling this last weekend for the, for some speaking gigs that I did. And when I am short slept, I don't consume caffeine. It just takes me from an already compromised state and makes it worse. The days where I'm really well rested and everything's good, 
then I'll take a little bit of caffeine. I do like a, a two shot espresso in the morning. And then I might do another one, maybe about 10 a.m. or something like that. And that's that's pretty much it. I'm good with that. But what I found is the days where I'm well rested and my my stress level is moderate and everything. Those are the days that if I want to have a little more caffeine, then I'll throw it in. But if I'm under the gun, if I'm under pressure, um, if I'm short slept, that is the day to dial my caffeine intake down. And that was a really, really hard one lesson. You know, I mean, usually people reach for the caffeine um, on the days when they're they're short slept and stuff like that. But interestingly, the, the for sure, you know, what I've found is if I'm short slept and I'm hurting and I'm I'm tired, I am much better served by putting on like my iPhone app of uh, Binaural Beats, the Brainwave app, and sitting yep. down, hands on the belly, belly breaths for five minutes. That will pull me back together. Taking a hot and cold alternating shower while I'm I'm short slept or you know under a lot of stress, that will pull me back together. Taking a dose of adrenal stimulants in the form of caffeine just digs a deeper hole that then takes me even longer to dig back out of. So that that has been a really you know hard one lesson. But I'll tell you, it's it's um it probably like dialed the aging effect back or like the way that I feel it dialed it back like 10 years, just being mindful of, okay, if I'm feeling compromised today, I need to meditate and breathe. Whereas if I'm feeling frisky today, then it's like, okay, let's do a little caffeine and get out and do some sprints or do jujitsu or something like that. And so it, it, um, you know, instead of when you're, when you're already in that, that compromised state, just trying to, go to the ATM and override the like, Hey, your bank account's empty. And it's like, ah, forget <laughs> For it. Sure. And I want even more, you know, put it on the credit card, you know, and instead of going on credit, I'm like, I'm only paying with cash. And that's all I, all I do. I love that. It's a great metaphor and definitely something I see a lot in clinical practice. Uh, awesome. Rob, really appreciate you taking the time out today. Um, you know, where can people pick up your new book, Wired to Eat and where can they get in touch with you? Oh, Wired to Eat is available anywhere books are sold. I know it's going to be released in Canada pretty much in parallel with the U.S. release, which is March 21st. And regardless of where folks are, uh, you if, if you pre-order the book, uh, you can go to robwolf.com forward slash Wired to Eat and you can find a spot on there where you can get all the pre-order bonuses that we have. And we have a ton of super cool stuff. We have a what was originally the first chapter of the book called Lies, Damn Lies, and Statistics. And it, it honestly is my favorite chapter of the book. Like the publishers really leaned on me to pull it out. But it's super long. And it basically details how the modern food environment and our kind of social political system has arrived us at the current situation. So it talks about like the political scene in the 1950s, 1960s, the uh, kind of academic kind of goofiness that happened and also the kind of underlying political environment that brought all this stuff to the fore. And there's several other super cool bonuses. But if they go to robwolf.com forward slash wired to eat, they can uh, send us a copy of their their receipt, whether they bought it in the brick and mortar store or an online order. And we'll send you out that swag. Perfect, Rob. I really, really appreciate you taking the time out today. Uh, and thanks again for everyone who's tuning in. As always, you can find all the links and a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you on Facebook or Twitter at drbubs. And if you enjoy the show, subscribe and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.